Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here this Tuesday, December 6th. I hope you're having a good December. Not too sick. I, it seems like a lot of people are sick. Not COVID sick, but really bad cold sick. I don't know uh, what's going on. You know, maybe all this staying in our homes has lowered our resistance to other illnesses. It just seems like right now I know such a huge number of people with um, various degrees of uh, of colds. Take care of yourself. You know, it's going to be a long holiday season. Pace yourself. Let's start with some local news. You know, first there is... Uh, when it comes to like the Chicago mayor's race, first we get all the people who jump into the race. I'm going to be the next Chicago mayor. Okay. Then we get to the point where they actually have to file their petitions. Okay. Got, um, got number one and got number two all taken care of. Got that right? Okay. Um, and, um, then we get into petition challenge season. This is where the people who either don't have a huge, um, pad, you need 12,500 legitimate signatures, but there's a lot of things that can go wrong. You can get somebody who's not a registered voter. To sign, you can get somebody who's signing too many petitions to sign. There's lots of things that could go wrong. And the fewer signatures you have, the more vulnerable you are uh, to this kind of thing happening. Okay, so here we go. We are now in petition challenge season. Jamal Green's petitions have been challenged by Ricky Hendon, former host here on uh, WCPT. Uh, His petitions are being challenged, so um, that means that he has to hire somebody to verify. um, And it's it's time consuming and it's expensive. Uh, Ricky Hendon is... um, Advising the campaign of Dr. Willie Wilson. Uh, plus, he and Jamal Green over the years have not been exactly what you would call best buddies. They have, by their own admission, had a few screaming matches. It happens. <laughs> so we've got uh, we've got that one. Um, doctor, speaking of Dr. Willie Wilson. He is challenging the petitions for Alderman Roderick Sawyer. We've had Rod Sawyer on before. He is currently an alder person in the city council. He is the son of Eugene Sawyer, who was uh, mayor of the city of Chicago for a relatively shortish kind of time. Uh, and uh, Rod Sawyer is, has put out a statement. He's not terribly happy with the fact that um, Willie Wilson is challenging his signatures he said, uh, this is quoted in Shia Kapos, Illinois Playbook today. Rod Sawyer said, Willie Wilson talks about being denied access to voting in his life. But now that he's a wealthy man, he's doing the exact same thing. 
denying people their choice by means of his wealth. Okie dokie. Uh, attorney Andrew Shoup, who is, um, according to Shia Capos, aligned with mayoral candidate Paul Vallis. I'm not quite sure what that means. Does that mean you're working for him but not getting paid? That just that you like him? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, attorney Andrew Shoup is challenging the petitions of Johnny Logalbo. Um, who was kind of uh, one of the dark horses, if you will, on this mayoral list. He describes himself as a consultant. I have not personally spoken to him on this show, but his petitions are being challenged. His signatures are being challenged. And um, Andre Holland has uh, challenged not only Johnny Legalbo, but also... Frederick Collins. And we talked to Frederick Collins last week. He's a Chicago police officer who um, decided he wanted to run for mayor. He's still working as a Chicago police officer, trying to do both at once. And he gathered, I think he said, 26,000 signatures. So, again, you have to have 12,500 that are found to be legitimate. And... um Oftentimes, thousands of signatures can be thrown out for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Lori Lightfoot's signatures have not, not, not been challenged, okay? And, um, oh, somebody else, uh, uh, Jamal Green, this is, you know, it's like we need a bingo card, okay? You need a bingo card with all of these names. Got it? Um, so, um, Jamal Green who is the candidate for mayor, the young activist candidate, whose petitions are being charged, challenged by Ricky Hendon, who has advised Willie Wilson. Well, Jamal Green is accusing Willie Wilson of not really living in Chicago. Uh, Green says, according again to a reporting that she shared with us this morning, uh, Jamal Green says Willie Wilson lives in Hazelcrest. He doesn't live in Chicago. He has a condo in Chicago, but that's where he does business. That's not his home. That's what Jamal Green is saying. Um, Willie Wilson's response is, I have two homes. I live in downtown Chicago. So, you know, I think it would be helpful if we printed up bingo cards. With all the contenders to be the next mayor... And what ways they are going after one another, either directly or through surrogates. Okay. I think that's a good idea. I think we had to print up something like that. Uh, the other big news of the day is uh, what is going on in Ukraine. Potentially some pretty serious escalation here. I don't know if you were listening to the news at the top of the hour I saw this on CNN. I've been reading about it in the Washington Post. You know, one of the big problems that um, supposedly Ukraine has had with Western Europe and the United States and everybody else who's supporting them, as especially President Biden has made it clear that uh, we will supply Ukraine with the armaments, at least most of the armaments, 
that it wants as long as Ukraine does not use any of that material to attack Russia on Russian soil. That has been that has been the agreement. Now, some people who I've read have said that that is crippling Zelensky and that if Zelensky really wants to create an atmosphere where Russia comes to the bargaining table, that that might not happen unless the fight is taken to Russian soil. Not everybody agrees with that, but that has been one argument that, you know, we're we're causing Zelensky to fight this war with essentially one hand tied behind his back because of the conditions that we have placed. So here's what's happened. Um, there have been two attacks deep inside of Russia at Russian airfields. You know, Russian, even though we've given the Ukrainians some weaponry to try to intercept missiles and protect themselves from the air, it hasn't been 100% effective. It's been largely effective, but, you know, if somebody's shooting six missiles at you and you shoot four of them down, that's a great percentage, but those other two missiles can still really wreak havoc, especially since they're firing them at, you know, hospitals and civilian targets. So um, two Russian airfields on Russian soil, were both attacked with drones. And um, they are Ukrainian drones. Hopefully they are not drones that Ukraine acquired from the United States, because that would be a violation of the agreement under which we supply them. Um, but Ukraine says... Um, that they're Ukrainian drones. They don't dispute that. So does that mean Ukrainian drones built in Ukraine? I hope that's what it means. Um, but they have taken the fight now over the border. Russia is pounding them from the air. We've seen it over and over again. The hospitals, the apartment buildings, you know, these aren't military targets that Russia has been targeting with their with their missiles fire, fired from planes. The, the, the attack from the skies has been focused on civilian targets. Frankly, I'm surprised Ukraine waited this long. But um, there was an attack um, on an oil facility and a couple of air bases. So far, uh, no retaliation. Remember a long time ago I told you how Russia was buying drones from Iran? And uh, that was the bad news. The good news was that a lot of them weren't working. They were kind of defective. Well, according to the Washington Post, uh, Russia has run out of those. (laughs) And see, the thing about these drones is um, a lot of them were set up to be suicide drones. You know, the United States, we sometimes use drones for attacks 
the drones fly somewhere, they fire a missile, and then they return back to where they started. The Iranian drones were, for the most part, for the most part, not capable of doing that. So it was basically strap a missile on it and just fly the whole drone into a target. So anyway, according to the Washington Post, they've run out. They've run out of Iranian drones, and apparently there's no more on the way. And uh, there was another article that I was reading this morning. I think this one was in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, supposedly Putin's big strategy was to sit tight, wait for winter. Western Europe would be in a terrible place because of the shortage of oil and natural gas that they get from Russia. And it was what they were going to get was going to be really expensive. And once people started being cold and miserable, the support for Ukraine would go away and Russia would finally have some kind of advantage. (laughs) I read in the Wall Street Journal today that um, at least in Germany, It's now almost a competition. It is certainly a point of pride with how people can um, economize on oil and gas use. People are starting to brag about, um, you know, the fact that they're turning the lights out and and that they're setting their thermostats down. It's it said, you know, Russia may have underestimated the uh, particularly the people in Germany and how they are so proud of their ability to be thrifty and that this is playing into that. There was um, an example made of a of a lecturer who was doing like a Zoom at, in the evening uh, from her university to a bunch of business people. And because they have those lights that are motion activated, the lights in the room kept going out. And finally, instead of turning them back on again, she just got her phone out, turned the flashlight on, put the flashlight on her face and continued the meeting. So this whole we'll wait till winter and then Western Europe will crumble. That might not be Putin's best solution. Dear God, this has to end soon, don't you think? How can it keep going like this? Uh, We will find out. Let's take a break. We are going to uh, usually um, I will share some news with you for the first half hour, but uh, we are going to switch gears. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dan Schaefer. He's our favorite reporter up in Wisconsin. We are going to talk to him about what's going on with the Wisconsin State Supreme Court and other things right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. We are joined by Dan Schaefer, who writes the recombobulation area uh, about what is going on in the state of Wisconsin. Dan, welcome back to the program. Dan? Andy, I don't hear Dan. 
Thanks, uh, thanks so much for having me, Joan. Ah, there you are. Uh, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, too. Uh, now, um, I understand that you have a sick kid at home, so if all of a sudden you just say, gotta go, you just go and do what you need to do as a dad, okay? All right? <laughs> that's right. I appreciate and that. If, and if you need to whisper so you don't wake him up, that's okay, too. I won't whisper, <laughs> but you can. So, Dan, Wisconsin... Uh, so sad to see Mandela Barnes uh, go down, though I have to say I, I wasn't shocked. Um, I think that uh, that was a tough state. I know that a lot of people poured a lot of money into Ron Johnson at the last minute. I know that Ron Johnson it, at least was effective in some parts of the state as um pretty much painting Mandela Barnes as other, a.k.a. black. And um, but I also think. And you would be the person to tell me if I know what I'm talking about here, because I don't live in Wisconsin and I didn't get on the ground and I didn't hear the speeches. But, you know, Mandela Barnes um, got some flack, you know, people. Even people who wanted to see Ron Johnson go down were worried that Mandela Barnes was not the right candidate in a lot of ways, particularly that he was too progressive. And in his past, he had said things about defunding the police. And what are your thoughts on that with the Monday morning quarterbacking here? Yeah, it's kind of been the big question that come out of the election in Wisconsin is just about how did, uh, you know, why did, but why was it that Barnes came so close but was not able to win this? And I think it is first important to note that this race, this race between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes was the closest Senate race we have seen in the state of Wisconsin in more than a century. Uh, so the last time we, we have a lot of races that are decided uh, by 1% in the state of Wisconsin. But this, for Senate, you know, this is this is very different uh, than what we've seen here. You know, just four years ago, when it was Democratic advantage midterm, Tammy Baldwin won re-election by 11%. Uh, Ron Johnson, in a, in a supposedly Republican advantage midterm, winning by just 1%, just 27,000 votes. Uh, Mandela Barnes and his camp came so close uh, to pulling off the upset here. But I think... You know, like you mentioned, Ron Johnson had a lot of uh, a lot of outside spending from a lot of groups outside, and I think the the Uline family and the Hendricks family, uh, billionaires from uh, from Northern Illinois and and Southern Wisconsin, uh, you know, they created what was called the Wisconsin Truth Pack, and they spent tens of millions of dollars attacking Mandela Barnes, and those were some of, like you mentioned, some of the most racist, uh, ridiculous ads that we saw in this election cycle came from that uh, outside group. And there was really no equivalent of that on the Democratic side. I think, you know, Barnes was able to fundraise reasonably well uh, against, you know, I mean, just kind of the head-to-head fundraising with Johnson. But the outside group really made a big difference. And, you know, it really came down to those 27,000 votes um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a very, very close race uh, in Wisconsin. I think going into the night, going into election night, People expected the governor's race to be the one that was really going to go down to the wire between Tony Evers and Tim Michaels. And Tony Evers won that one in uh, what some folks around here are calling a Wisconsin landslide, uh, which is 3.5%. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that is a Wisconsin and, uh, landslide. 
Exactly, exactly. And so Evers be able to win by that margin, and then uh, Barnes just a couple percentage points behind him, unable to pull off the upset against a well-funded two-term incumbent uh, in a Republican advantage year. So, so a tough one, but but you know many reasons why uh, it, it seems like that was that was the case. Um, I do want to talk to you about all Wisconsin politics, and that includes what is going on with the state Supreme Court there. We are uh, coming. I was a little chatty at the top of the show, so this was a, this is going to be a short segment. Um, as long as the sick kids stay asleep, we will be back right after a break with more from Dan Schaefer. His, you can follow him on Substack. It's called the Recombobulation Area. Aren't you proud of me? It took me so long to learn how to say that, Dan, and now it just rolls off my tongue like I know what I'm talking about. I've got it. <clears throat> you can I also follow it. him, at least for now, on Twitter. We're all still hanging on there, at Dan R. Schaefer. We are going to be back with more right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Wisconsin's Dan Schaefer. You can find him on Twitter at Dan R. Schaefer. You can also subscribe to his writing on Substack, the Recombobulation Area. He writes about all things Wisconsin. So let's talk about the state Supreme Court, Dan. Yeah, I can't, this is an absolutely huge race uh, that we that we have here in Wisconsin coming up in the 2023 spring election. Now, we just, of course, ended a very high profile, very intense election cycle here in the state of Wisconsin with races for governor and senator at the top of the ticket. And we are going to be jumping right in to another election cycle for an election that will determine the majority uh, of the state Supreme Court. And the uh, there is a conservative justice who is retiring at the end of her 10-year term and uh, will create an open seat. And the court is currently a four to three conservative majority uh, with Justice Roggensack uh, retiring. It will create the best opportunity that liberals in Wisconsin will have to win a majority on this court in, in recent history and really at any time going forward over the next decade. Uh, so it is just a huge, huge election. I cannot overstate the importance of this race to the state of Wisconsin. And I think one of the biggest reasons for that is because in Wisconsin, in our state legislature, we have perhaps the most gerrymandered state legislature of any state in the in the country. And uh, even though Tony Evers, you know, won, uh, like I was mentioning in the last segment, a 3.5 percent Wisconsin landslide, uh, the, the makeup of the Wisconsin state legislature was close to getting to be a two-thirds Republican supermajority. And that Uh is because we have such ridiculously gerrymandered maps. So the reason that this Supreme Court case, or Supreme Court election matters so much is because if liberals win a majority here, if they are able to flip the seat and get that four to three majority, that would open up challenges to these ridiculously gerrymandered maps, uh, which is why we have such extreme policies in with the state of Wisconsin on so many issues. Uh, so it is it is, again, an extremely important race. Uh, the primary will be February 21st. The election will be April 4th. So Wisconsin jumping right in to another high profile, high stakes election cycle. So how does it look? I mean, 
Yes, we saw Tony Evers, yay Democrats. Um, and then even though it was a close race, we saw Mandela Barnes go down. Uh, sad for Democrats. Do uh, what I found, we were lucky because our Supreme Court ballots races were on the same ballot as the midterms. So, um, honestly, for at least a month or two before the midterm elections, I tried, if not every day, several days a week to remind people that if they voted for nothing else, you know, if you don't want to vote for governor, don't vote for governor, but go to the end of your ballot. And if you are in Illinois District 2 or Illinois District 3, you must vote for the Supreme Court seats because we had two of them up and our Supreme Court could have gone Republican. And as you say, just like in your state, it's 10 years, baby, that you're looking at it. So what can we do? What can you do to, to make people understand how critically important this is. You get it. I get it. But, you know, there's a lot of people I've discovered who don't live, eat and breathe government and politics. They have um, they have other aspects to their lives that are apparently very important to them. So how do we get the message out about how important this is, Dan? Yeah, I think a lot, you know, it's going to be really important for those of us to be to be who are in the mix to be talking about this race. Uh, because people aren't aren't necessarily uh, looking ahead to a spring election in 2023 as as one that is going to be you know of paramount importance. And I think you know Democrats in Wisconsin are really paying attention to this one now because I think uh, a similar election that happened about four years ago now in spring of 2019, uh, when there was another one of these state supreme court races that hit the ballot in a spring election. Uh, the conservative candidate, Brian Hagedorn, ended up winning by just 6,000 votes uh, in a statewide race. So mm-hmm. extremely, extremely close race there. And I think, you know, had the Democrat or the liberal backed candidate uh, won that election, you know, we would be looking at a very different dynamic in Wisconsin for the redistricting process for the past couple of years, for a lot of the pandemic response over the last couple of years. And, you know, frankly, the ridiculous efforts to overturn the election that we saw uh, from Republicans here in Wisconsin. Uh, So I think, you know, people have really, the people who are in politics are really aware of this. It's going to be important for all of us to, to continue to be talking about that. Uh, And I think, you know, there's been some news lately that is going to bring some added attention uh, to this race. There are now two conservative candidates and two liberal candidates uh, running in for the primary uh, one that, definitely generated some headlines over the past couple of weeks here in Wisconsin is the fact that uh, Judge Jennifer Doro, who is a judge in Waukesha County uh, in the suburbs here, uh, she is running. She announced her candidacy last week. Uh, she recently had kind of a star turn uh, in the state of Wisconsin as the judge presiding over the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacres trial. Yeah. Uh, and so she got a lot of attention because of that. She's a conservative candidate. She was appointed by Scott Walker about a decade ago to that seat in uh, on the Waukesha courts. Uh, so she will get a lot of attention as a candidate. Uh, the other conservative is Daniel Kelly. He was backed by Donald Trump. Uh, and, and actually, he was he was on the state Supreme Court. He was appointed by Scott Walker. But when he was up for reelection, he lost pretty big. Uh, so he is the type of kind of like far right uh, conservative that, that did especially poorly 
uh, in these in these most recent midterms. Uh, and then there are two uh, liberal candidates. Um, one is uh, I'm I'm not going to get her last pronounce her last name correctly, so I'll just stick with Judge Janet, which is what she's been going by in the campaign. Uh, she's a Milwaukee County judge, and Everett Mitchell, who is a Dane County judge. Uh, so it's going to be a really, you know, I think there's some really strong supporters uh, for all of those candidates. It's going to be a pretty high fr- profile primary in February. And then as we get to April, I think the, the focus of the political universe here in Wisconsin will will turn to that race in a very big way. Well, I'm hesitant to count out the influence of Donald Trump, though, by all appearances, it is waning. Uh, if you had to place a bet between uh, Jennifer and Daniel, the uh, Waukesha County judge and, or the Waukesha judge and the uh, Trump anointed person for the slot, would you put your money on Jennifer? I think she probably has the best chance to win in a general election. I think, you know, as we've seen in a lot of these cases, the primaries can be tough with, with a, you know, a Trump-backed candidate. You know, we just saw the on the Republican gubernatorial race that happened here in Wisconsin. You know, Rebecca Clayfish was long thought to be the candidate who would emerge from the, uh, for the Republicans to face Tony Evers. She ended up losing in the primary to Tim Michaels, and Tim Michaels ended up losing in the general election. So I yeah, think we saw know, that with Darren Bailey. I mean, you know, there could have been a lot more. There are a lot more moderate Republicans in the state of Illinois, but um, but they have a moderate Republicans, at least in Illinois, had a hard time making it through their primaries when they were challenged by more far right candidates. Right. And I and I don't know if, you know, I don't know enough about Doro to, to really speak to some of the specifics of her policies. But I, I think she's probably going not to be as far right as, as Daniel Kelly. But I think, you know, she is uh, she is someone that has um, a uh, she went to an evil evangelical Christian law school. Uh, so I know she has uh, some, you know, definitely some views that align with the more conservative religious right that is kind of the Waukesha County is kind of the stronghold for that uh, within the state of Wisconsin. So that is an interesting, uh, you know, kind of piece of the larger dynamic there. The state is still waiting to rule. The state Supreme Court is still not yet ruled on Wisconsin's uh, 1849 criminal abortion ban. (sighs) So, you know, that is going to be something that uh, will certainly be a big part of this race as well. Okay, let's talk about the uh, Democratic candidates. Uh, Judge Janet versus uh, Mr. Mitchell. Uh, Milwaukee County versus Dane County, I think you said. Um, Talk to me about that matchup. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, two really interesting candidates. Um, You know, I think we're all going to have an opportunity to learn a lot more about them in, uh, in the coming months. But I think you know, Everett Mitchell, the, the Dane County judge, uh, he is, you know, kind of backed by a number of the more progressive organizations in the state. And uh, Judge Janet, I'm, I'm going to have to I, I got to go figure out how to pronounce her last name. I, <laughs> I, I, apologies for that. Uh, we have, we've got a lot of some long Polish last names in Wisconsin from time to time. So, so that's my bad on that one. Uh, but she is, uh, you know, she is backed by. Uh, she is with a group called Nation Consulting, and Nation Consulting has been, you know, kind of pi- has piloted a couple successful 
Wisconsin Supreme Court campaigns over the last couple uh, cycles that has put this in a position, uh, you know, to have this majority flipped uh, in this election. So I think it's going to be a really interesting race. Um, you know, we just saw, uh, you know, uh, kind of a more um, a more moderate success story with Tony Evers in Wisconsin and Mandela Barnes not quite seeing seeing the same level of success. I think a lot of people will be, you know, just reflecting on that very recent history to, to kind of ascertain who might be the more uh, viable candidate in, in a general election uh, between these two candidates. But I think we still have a lot to learn about these candidates as we go forward and plunge into uh, this next election cycle that we have here in Wisconsin. Well, you know, you have the same problem that we had here. You know, I interviewed uh, some of the candidates who are running for Supreme Court, but when somebody's running uh, to be a judge, you know, you can't say, well, what do you what's your opinion on this? And, you know, how do you feel about this issue? Uh, it's you, you know, you can talk to them about their background um, and who they are and and that sort of thing. But it becomes it becomes very tricky. And I feel sorry for uh, judges sometimes who have to run for election because you can't, I mean, you can look at past decisions. You can ask them about that. Obviously, you know, Jennifer Doro is going to, as you said, have her profile raised with this high profile trial. Um, but it's, I feel like we're asking them to run as candidates and then we're basically hamstringing them because they can't really talk about how they feel about anything or what they plan to do or not do. It's a, it's a real, it's a real fine line to walk, don't you find? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's, you know, the, the fact the reason that this election is happening in the spring is, is the spring in Wisconsin is when we have elections that are ostensibly nonpartisan, uh, even though I think everybody kind of gets <laughs> gets what's happening at this point with these types of races, especially one as high profile as this one. But I think I think you're you're absolutely right about that in that, you know, this is this being a, a race that is technically nonpartisan and it's going to be you're going to be asking a lot of these, uh, you know, people will be asking these candidates some some questions that are, you know, going to have uh, partisan implications to them as well. So I think it's, it's going to be a challenge. Um, before I let you go, one minor critique. Uh, nobody wants to read about the Milwaukee Bucks. OK. Dan, I'm just telling you this right now. Don't waste any energy on the Milwaukee Bucks. Don't waste any energy on the Green Bay Packers. Nobody wants that, Dan. Nobody wants that. Oh, come on now. The Milwaukee Bucks, the 2021 world champion Milwaukee Bucks, our all-world all star Giannis Adetokounmpo. You don't think anybody ever wants to hear about that, not even in Chicago? Maybe no. winning over some fans down there? No, 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 no absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right. Well, not I ever. To, not a, not a minute of it. I don't want to see anything on your Twitter account anymore. I don't want to see anything on the recombobulation area anymore. No one cares about the Bucks or the Packers. You know, I am probably one of the only people out there on Twitter who gets people to say stick to politics. Instead <laughs> of stick to sports. Because I get people who will, you know, maybe find me through your show or, or, or some of the other uh, political uh, news and analysis that I share on Twitter. And, and all of a sudden during a Bucks game, I'm I'm live tweeting, uh, you know, at play by play. I'm a huge Bucks fan. 
uh, in particular, and I'll get some people who will reply to me, hey, I follow you for, for politics. Stick to politics. I can't imagine there's a whole lot of people who get that type of response on Twitter. Yeah, really, mostly it's, you know, do whatever it is you do for a living and stay out of politics because nobody wants your political opinions. Um, but I was actually surprised I, a couple of years ago when I was um, I was learning about Twitter. Twitter is even, even though it's extremely popular with journalists and people who report on government and politics it is even more popular with people who follow sports teams. And, you know, sometimes I do my best to weed out all of these sports-related posts from my Twitter feed, but sometimes people like you who I can't let go of, and even sometimes like mainstream media outlets, they'll start, you know, tweeting about some some game, and I'm like, you know, I, I can't block them, like, like if it's, whether it's Washington Post or Good Morning America, but I get very annoyed with them. I think there should be a way that you can set your settings so that you don't get any sports posts, because clearly we're not doing that well here in the state of Illinois, and I'm bitter, Dan, I'm bitter. <laughs> Just trying to avoid the sports at all costs. Well, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess if you got to watch the Bears week in and week out, you've got to do it that way, right? You got <laughs> to stay out of it. Uh, well, I hope you take my advice to heart. Um, thank you for being here, Dan. I really, I really appreciate it. And as um, as the primary gets a little bit closer, I'd love to touch base with you again and see how these. Um, campaigns of these four candidates seem to be shaping up it's going to be a big race it's going to be a lot it is it's going to be huge and the repercussions that's what that's what i tried to convince or or educate people about who listen to this radio show the you know you and you elect a congressperson you know two years from now you can get rid of them you elect a supreme court justice and for the next decade they are going to be deci- deciding which laws stand and which laws get struck down it is just so big a part of your life on a day-to-day basis that it just can't be ignored so yeah, i'm right there with you we saw it really come into focus in 2020 with the, the pandemic response, with the, the Republicans suing to stop uh, the governor from, you know, governing uh, more or less during the pandemic. And then we had three of the three of the seven, the three conservative, the three far right conservatives on the state Supreme Court effectively voted to overturn the election in the state of Wisconsin. We have one kind of swing vote conservative uh, Brian Hagedorn, who has sided with the liberal justices on a number of high-profile cases. And I, frankly, it would be nice to be in a situation where we uh, these court rulings don't come down to how Brian Hagedorn is feeling that day. <laughs> I would like uh. Them, uh, to, to come down to, to something a little bit more substantive uh, than just the one swing justice who, uh, you know, might be a conservative, but not so conservative they're not so far right that he is going to vote to overturn the election. Yeah, yeah. Which can't be said for the rest of the conservatives on the court in Wisconsin. And uh, a chance to bring some cases to really battle back a lot of the damage that's been done uh, in redistricting and other things. Uh, it's a definitely one day we are going to be keeping an eye on, Dan. And thank you for joining us. You will be summoned back to the radio sooner rather than later, my friend. Anytime, John. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. 
We are going to take a break. And um, I don't know if you get Tom Hartman's emails, the Hartman report in your email box. They're always fascinating, just like his show. Um, but I read an email that went out yesterday and I just thought it was um, it, it was it just really struck me. And uh, so after um, after the news at three o'clock, Tom Hartman is going to join us to talk about it. But when we come back after this break, I'm going to share uh, parts of this essay with you. We'll be back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. I was, um, I got engrossed in other things. Um, part of what I got engrossed in is this Tom Hartman essay that I um, want to talk to Tom Hartman about. If you don't get his um, emails on a regular basis, uh, this one's called The Danger of the Rich and Powerful Man Bubble. Um, and it's subtitled, All These Rich and Powerful Men Think They're Secret Geniuses. Once they've concluded the truth of their own infallibility, they stop listening to those whose opinions contradict their own. You know, Tom has talked about how we are all but turning into an oligarchy because of all of the tax cuts to the wealthiest people that started with Ronald Reagan. We have created a two-tier society. Rich people in this country used to pay a lot more in tax than they do now. And virtually every Republican administration has given the wealthiest folks another tax break up to and including Donald Trump. So here's what I what really caught my eye. Um, here's what caught my eye about this essay. That here's the first paragraph. It was a mistake a flock of geese wouldn't make. It was a mistake nature and evolution have designed against in all animal life. But a small group of humans keep making it over and over again. And our Supreme Court has made the situation far, far worse. And what he's talking about is the fact that when somebody makes a lot of money, they think that they are brilliant. They're, you know, and sometimes they were in the right place in the right time. Sometimes they were just damn lucky. But somebody who makes a lot of money, especially, I'm, I mean, it generally is always men. They start to think that they're some kind of genius. Here's a part also of what Tom says. All these rich and powerful men had have the same thing in common. They believed their brilliance or success in one area meant they were brilliant and would be successful in all endeavors. As a result of this false belief, each surrounded themselves with yes men and lived in a bubble, disconnecting them from their business or political constituents, leading to bad, poorly informed decision-making. I mean, whether you're talking about Donald Trump or Elon Musk, does this ring familiar to you? Because it does with me. And these people present a threat to democracy. Tom's argument is that we 
do best as a society when we all weigh in on the decisions kind of keeps us from going off to one extreme or the other when it's a when groups make the decisions but when you get a really blinded politician who's powerful or an oligarch like Elon Musk when you get decision making concentrated in one person or a tiny group of people that is when you get the more radical policies because they don't have the power of the group to bring them to the middle and they don't want to hear about it you know supposedly look at Kirsten Cinema who was a progressive she was a green candidate when she ran for senate the first time in Arizona and from everything i've read about her over time anybody who ever said that they disagreed with her or that they thought she was wrong on an issue those people were purged from her inner circle so her inner circle became a group of people that consistently told her how brilliant she was and i haven't read much about this since the first leak a year or two ago but supposedly her inner circle feels that she has a chance to be president because she is a spurning the democrats and the conservative people love that and um and so she's going to get because she is a democrat she's going to get those votes and because she's spurning them she's going to get the republican votes that was supposedly the story that um her inner circle was spinning oh you have the makings for president in 2024 and instead she's become a footnote we are going to take a break for news at the top of the hour and we are going to talk with Tom Hartman about this in much greater detail because i'm telling you what he wrote he talked to biologists about how decisions are made in nature it is fascinating we're going to get to it right after a break Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. The Devil's Advocates with Dom and Groot. Don't know if you've caught the spectacle, but it's getting quite interesting around here. Weeknights from 6 to 8 p.m. Worldwide, right. Chicago, progressive voices on WCPT 820. That is a sweet deal, Jack. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. want to share with you a bit of breaking news before we get back to the rest of our day. Uh, a jury has found two Trump organization companies guilty of tax fraud and falsifying business records. They were guilty on all felony counts. This was a part of that 15-year scheme that Alan Weisselberg was involved in where they got perks that were part of the job that should have been declared as income and never were. Um, none of the Trump family, however, were facing indictments by name in this. So uh, we shall see what happens. It looks like it's possible Alan Weisselberg is the only one who is going to end up going to jail here. Um, I was telling you a minute ago about the um, the email in my inbox every day with another essay Written by Tom Hartman, Tom Hartman, of course, here every day, right before me on WCPT, WCPT820.com. The one that he wrote yesterday, just really, I just, I felt like I learned so much. I mean, it's a, something that we all know sort of instinctively, 
Um, you know, when people get to be uh, very wealthy, they tend to uh, be mm, they tend to have very healthy egos. Sometimes that means they surround themselves with people who only tell them how brilliant they are. And that doesn't make for the best decision making. Uh, Tom Hartman took it a step further and looked not only into our history as a country, but also into how decisions are made in nature and what turns out to be the best decision-making process. Tom joins us now to talk about this. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hi, Joan. Thank you. It's always great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased. I just, I was reading this and I was like, oh my God, you know, this is something I sort of sensed, but the way you explain it all, what really struck me and what I'd like you to talk to the audience about is, you know, we're right at the start of it. You so you know, it was a mistake a flock of geese wouldn't make that that this kind of decision making isn't how different species move forward. Talk about the biology of these kinds of uh, decisions. Yeah, I you know, I started off by pointing out that, um, you know, Donald Trump is making terrible mistakes. Uh, Vladimir Putin is making terrible mistakes. I mean, there's just uh, Elon Musk is making terrible mistakes. And all you know, what these men all have in common is that they've surrounded themselves with yes men and they're living in a bubble and and that they're not getting information from a diverse variety of sources and they're not listening to their people and not listening to your people means you're not you know, conforming to the standards and norms of democracy. Um, and and this is where it gets to the animal kingdom, which is just fascinating. I'm I'm sure you have. I, it's kind of a universal human experience to have watched a, a flock of birds, and suddenly the entire flock just in mid-flight takes a 20 degree turn to the right, you know, or watch a school of fish, and suddenly the entire school. It's not like the leader takes a left turn and everybody follows the leader. That's not how it works. It's like they all do it, and it appears to be simultaneous. Mm-hmm. And, I, I was always fascinated by that. I could never figure it out. And I'm, I'm writing this book right now, which will be out next spring. It's, it's called The Hidden History of Democracy. And, uh, you know, I did a deep dive on this and found all this amazing research, a lot of it done in the, uh, in the, uh, tw- in the early 2000s and, you know, through 2015, um, a lot of it out of a couple of universities in the United Kingdom, where they said, you know, you know how, do animals, how, do, how does animal decision-making work? And the original guys who made the hypothesis, Conrad and Roper, uh, I interviewed them, and uh, I'll get to them in just a second. But based on their and, and what they found was basically that decision making among animals is democratic. But how does that happen? Well, um, James Randerson, for a piece for New Scientist, did a follow up study where they took a herd of red deer near the University of Essex in in the United Kingdom that was on. Uh, some forest land that the university used, owned, and they put cameras in the trees and things, and they watched these red deer. And red deer are animals that have an alpha leader. There's a hierarchy to the to the pack or whatever they call them, the herd. And so you would think that the leader is making the decision, but it turns out that when you know, the, for example, we're we're out here grazing in the fields, eating grass, and at some point we've got to go to the water hole and get water. Now, if we go too early, um, you know, we may not get enough nutrients. We might not get enough grass. If we go too late, some members of the herd might be dehydrated, particularly the older or younger ones, and it might put their health at risk. 
So how do we make that decision when to go to the watering hole? And then in this case, they had three different watering holes that were possible choices for these deer. How do you choose which one? And it turned out that under normal circumstances, what the deer would be doing is they'd be standing around chewing their you know, grass. And slowly, as it got close to one o'clock in the afternoon, which was typically you know, lunchtime or water time, they would start pointing themselves just randomly throughout the herd at one of these three watering holes. And when they reached the point where 51% of the herd, 50% plus one, were pointing at one particular watering hole, the entire herd, within a matter of moments, would just, you know, start moving toward that watering hole where it gets really fascinating. Now, this is how, you know, the, the, the framers of our Constitution put it together, right? We, we, we vote on things and majority wins. But there are some things in our Constitution where it takes a supermajority. Like if you're going to impeach a president, you have to have two-thirds vote in the Senate. If you're going to amend the Constitution, you have to have a two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate. And what Randerson found was that if he introduced a predator, if he, if he put the smell of wolves nearby, not an actual wolf, but the deer thought there was a wolf, if you put the smell of a wolf nearby, the deer didn't move to the watering hole until two-thirds of them had pointed oh. to a particular watering hole. I mean, isn't this amazing, right? And, and so it turns out that the way that those fish or those flocks of birds are all moving, I always assumed it was telepathic, frankly. I mean, how <laughs> naive I was, right? But the way that they're doing it is with each wing beat or with each fin swish, you know, as they're swimming along or flying along, um, each bird or each fish, and, and this applies to, this applies to gnats, you know, a ball of gnats in the air, and you see it moving around in the summer. Yeah. How did that whole ball of gnats know to move as, a, as an entire ball? Well, it turns out that, you know, with each wing beat, each gnat or each bird or each fish is pushing itself a little, you know, a, a degree or two to the right or a degree or two to the left. And when more than 50% of them have pushed themselves a degree or two to the right, suddenly the whole flock turns to the right. The whole school wow. turns to the right. The whole swarm moves to the right. They're voting and they're co- counting votes in real time continuously. Democracy is the, is the baseline state of nature. That is, uh, I just, I was reading that and I, my, my jaw just dropped because you would think if there was any place you know, you think of um, wild horses and there's, you know, the stallion who is the leader and, you know, decides, well, today we're going to go over to the next pasture and start grazing there. Um, but even the idea that there is this sort of democratic decision making and and the fact that we do best when we act like all the other animals act to promote their best interest. Only we don't, you know, um, I mean, and it isn't even just you can't even blame it just on the Elon Musk and the Donald Trumps and their own egos, because there are people that seem to want to not have to think to want somebody to tell them where to go and what to do. I, I have to believe that's some sort of a component of the followers of these guys, certainly their inner circles who, um, I mean, you know, like the, the Mike Pence model of, uh, I adore you. I adore you. I don't care how you abuse me. I adore you. Um, if we don't seem to go the way nature would want us to go, why are we doing this when it is not in our best interest? Yeah, it, it really is the, the big question. And Mike Pence is kind of the poster child for, for, uh, the political version of the abused, spouse you know mm-hmm. um, 
But, you know, with regard to that, that whole leadership issue in nature, the other amazing thing that I learned in doing this research is that there are, you know, leader animals. I mean, there is a, a, a typically a female wolf who leads a pack. There's uh, typically a male, uh, you know, lion who leads a pride. There's uh, so there are there are these identifiable leaders uh, that vary among species. You know, sometimes it's male, sometimes it's female, um, but it's always consistent within that species. But it turns out that the only real choice that they have, you know, in a hunting pack like wolves the leader will typically be the most competent hunter. And and it's kind of a vote. I mean, the rest of the wolves defer to that one, saying, mm-hmm. okay, you're the most competent hunter. Which, by the way, is how Native American tribes were organized. I mean, Ben Franklin wrote about this. There's a lot of Ben Franklin in my next book. And and But the other thing is that the only other where area where the leader has first choice is choice of sexual partners. That was pretty much it. You know, uh, occasionally they would, you know, lead the hunt, I mean, depending on the species. But but uh, one thing that was relatively universal across species was that what we view as leaders, we think of them as making all these decisions. Well, no, the only decision that they get to make is who they're going to mate with. And that is consistent with Darwinian evolution. So, uh, you know, it's it's just an amazing thing. So then the question, you know, why don't humans go along with this? <laughs> you know, why are we not doing this? Yeah, well, that was the idea of the founders was let's do this. Let's in, in fact. In the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson talked about nature's God. And John Adams, who edited the Declaration of Independence, scratched that out and put in the Christian God. And Thomas Jefferson came back and scratched the Christian God out and put back in <laughs> nature's God. And it's still there in the Declaration of Independence. And what was he talking about? He believed, as did Ben Franklin and George Washington, they were all deists. They believed that nature and God were the same thing, that, that, you know, you couldn't separate divinity from nature and that the, the rules and the laws that they saw being lived out in nature were the rules and laws by which humans should live as well. And, you know, their understanding wasn't quite as sophisticated as this new research out of the University of Sussex, but, or Essex, but um, you know, they, they, they intuited it or they mm-hmm. understood it. Well, actually, it turns out that you know, 10, 20,000 years of trial and error among Native Americans on North America had figured this out. And that uh, that word got back to Europe in the, in the late 1600s and throughout the early 1700s. And that then inspired what we refer to as the Renaissance. Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke were literally studying Native Americans. And there were a number of uh, Native Americans who spoke English or French who went to Europe and uh, one of them uh, trying to negotiate a treaty with the the King of England uh, to not steal their lands anymore. And Thomas Jefferson, at the age of 17, was at his going away ceremony for this, for this, uh, Anaset was his name, this, this Native American chief. And, and, uh, you know, so, so they had already incorporated this into, into their uh, political systems. So the idea of American democracy came largely from Native Americans who had observed it over a 10,000-year period in nature and through trial and error via the European Renaissance. (laughs) It's an amazing story. I'm I'm so excited about this book that I've been living in this, writing this book for six months. I've got to get the final draft off to the publisher this next weekend. And, um, you know, boy, what I learned. Uh, and what we are learning through you and, and appreciate all of the good hard work you do all the time to bring these 
books to us. Um, we need to take a break. And uh, I want to talk to you about the role the Supreme Court has and continues to play in all of this. I'm speaking with Tom Hartman. If you don't sign up for the Hartman Report and his you can get his emails, you can become a paid subscriber. Uh, we will be right back with Tom Hartman after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, it's just refreshing. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. I am so pleased to be joined by Tom Hartman, who is really giving us a preview about his new book that is going to be coming out in 2023. It, um... He touches on some of these themes in an essay email that he sent out yesterday, Monday, titled The Danger of the Rich and Powerful Man Bubble. And we have been talking about how in nature, animals decide on a pretty democratic basis what's best for the group and that that kind of decision making is best for the long-term survival of the species and that humans really should do it a little bit more than they have been doing it. Tom also talks about the how the fact that the Supreme Court has made this situation worse. And, Tom, I want you to talk about that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, well, the, you know, predicating all this on the conversation we just had, um, for people who missed it, just real quick, is that basically nature is organized democratically, small d democratically, and the founders wanted America to be organized democratically, which means that the will of the people or the majority of the people, except when it impinges on the rights of minorities, is what happens. And the the Supreme Court is kind of the exception to that. They're they're an, uh, an, uh, an undemocratic um, institution in as much as they are not elected by the people. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but you know they they don't they don't necessarily reflect the will of the people. In fact, I said on on my show a couple of weeks ago that um, you know the country seems to work best when the Supreme Court does reflect the will of the people, uh, which generated a lot of controversy. But I think that's true, and I think that they're very out of step right now with what's going on, you know, with what the majority of people want, and so they're making decisions that you know, fly in the face of what a democratic body would do that, you know, and, and, you know, they're obviously doing it uh, very much to the benefit of bigots and billionaires and corporations and very much to the detriment of minorities in the United States and average Americans and people who believe in democracy. And as a consequence of this, I think, you know, Citizens United is probably the, the most egregious example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can see how we can see how they're just they're, they're ruining democracy in this country. It is. Well, you know, one of the things that I've been saying is that 20 part of the reason why 2024 is so important is that we've got to do something about the Supreme Court. I cannot live for the next 40 years with Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch making decisions um, uh, the way they have been making them so far. So whatever shape or form reform takes. I personally wouldn't mind seeing the court enlarged, but I know that Biden has been resistant to that. 
Um, are you concerned about court reform? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, I think the very first thing we need to do is impose a code of judicial ethics on the court. Um, a lot of what they've been doing, you know, these secret dinners that the right wingers mm. have been having with religious groups. Yes, the, the plan to get access that was laid out. Exactly. Here's what you do. You donate to these causes. You get invited to these events. You rub shoulders with the justices. You get to know them. Take them out to dinner. And, and there you go. Yeah. And, and that's, that just is a slap in the face to, to, to our country, frankly, and to our Constitution. Um, so, and, and that goes back, you know, at least 20, 30 years. Uh, you know, Scalia and, and Thomas used to do these junkets, you know, to the Koch brothers' estates and, and to fancy resorts. And, I mean, that's where Scalia died, was it? Yeah. It was a, he was on a hunting trip, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Only it wasn't just any old hunting trip. It was, you know, a, a, a you know one of these thousand dollar a day places, you know, where you've got luxury accommodations out in the woods, and and you know they they uh, they trap birds and release them so you can easily shoot them and all that kind of uh. stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's you know this is this is how you bribe the Supreme Court, and uh, it's just it's so wrong. So number one. Uh, you know, uh, impose a judicial code of ethics. Article three, section two of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations and with exceptions defined by Congress. And so Congress has completely the power. I mean, and if the Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to go along with it, Congress can cut off their budget. So you can't use that building anymore. You know, you're you're welcome to meet in the basement of a of a hotel in town if you want, but you know we're not going to give you the Supreme Court building, or we're not going to fund you, or we're not going to pay the salaries of your of your uh, clerks. I mean, Congress has absolute power over the Supreme Court not not absolute, but a tremendous power. But even now, Court. with a majority in Congress, do you really think they have the will, Tom? I doubt right now that there's the will to expand the court. Um, it really needs to be driven from the top down. It took Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, you know, he came into power in 33, and it wasn't until 37, was that four years later, that, um, he, you know, they, they had shot down, they, they, they knocked down the child labor laws that he had passed. They knocked down the minimum wage law that he had passed. They knocked down the unemployment insurance that he had passed. I mean, they knocked down a half a dozen major pieces of the New Deal, and they were preparing to knock down Social Security. And and that's when Franklin Roosevelt declared war on them. And it's, it, it, to to expand the court or really make some significant changes, it's going to require that kind of leadership. It's going to require Joe Biden to declare war on the Supreme Court. And I don't see that he has the stomach for that yet. But, you know, let's see how outrageous they get. I mean, this decision from from yesterday's arguments about, hey, let's let people discriminate. Let's let companies discriminate against gay people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, once again. You know, that if that that comes out, it'll probably be next June when these cases are released. And if that comes out the way I think it's going to, that, that among other things, I mean, tomorrow is going to be more V. Harper. Should individual state legislatures be able to just reject the will of the voters and say, oh, yeah, we'd like Donald Trump for president? You know, even if Arizona, we know that the, the members of the Supreme Court are human and we know that even though they pretend otherwise, they know what is being said about them and their decisions. Do you think after what happened with Roe v. Wade and uh, the backlash and the fallout from all of that, do you think that there is any motivation among the conservative members of the Supreme Court to maybe rein it in a little bit, Tom? I think, you know, and this is, brings us back to where we started this conversation, Joan, about, you know, how Elon Musk and Donald Trump and, and Vladimir Putin are all engaging in terrible decision making because they're living in bubbles. 
I think that's what's going on with these members of the court as well. Their social circles are right wing. Their their political circles are right wing. Their colleagues that they hang out with are right wing. And uh, they believe increasingly that this is a reflection of, you know, the grand sweep of America. It very much is not. And I, I, it's, the question is, how far will they go before they get reined in? And, and I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. I certainly don't. Well, every time everybody, anybody that any reporter I've seen who's talked to President Biden about the idea of expanding the court to dilute this uh, far right wing um, majority that we have, he's been adamant. Now, I don't know if he's adamant because he knows deep down inside he doesn't have the votes for it, but it's uh, he has basically said, nope, you know, not going there. And as you say, the Congress could impose a code of ethics. And unless I've missed it, I don't think that they're moving in that direction. Yeah, that would be the low hanging fruit. I mean, that that's the sort of thing that should be relatively non-controversial, um, although I'm sure the Republicans would oppose it anyway. But but uh, Congress doesn't have to hit a two thirds threshold um, to to impose these things on the court. They, it could be subject to a filibuster in the Senate. But and, and I'm sure would be. But uh, that's, you know, it's possible if they could carve a hole into the filibuster, if they if they can, you know, move uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema on that and they can get, you know, Joe Biden rendered irrelevant by by Reverend Walker, uh, Reverend uh, Warnock, excuse me. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, I just think that this is this is like really important stuff because the Supreme Court. First of all, there's no place in the Constitution that says that the Supreme Court has the power to strike down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president. And yet, you know, they're, they're doing this left and right mm-hmm. and, and, and imposing their will on states now as well. And uh, it just they've, they've just gone way too far. That's, uh, you know, another book I wrote three years ago, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. And it's just when you get into how the early presidents uh, thought of the Supreme Court and the battles that Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson and, and Abraham Lincoln, where all three of them defied, defied the court. Well, actually, Jackson and, and, uh, and Lincoln explicitly and openly defied the court and, and just said, no, I'm not going to enforce these rules that you're making, these, these decisions you're making. And the court, as a result of that, just kind of backed off. Said, oh, OK, all right. Um, so, you know, we, we've got to we got to get some political courage in D.C., Yeah, we absolutely do. Tom, thank you so much for spending part of your afternoon with us. I'm going to let you go now because I want you to go to your desk and immediately continue working on this book, which you need to get done sooner rather than later. Okay. I will. I promise. Okay. In fact, it's going to be, it's going to be titled the hidden history of American democracy, rediscovering humanity's ancient way of living. And it's already available on some of your online websites. I mean, for pre-order, it won't be shipping until next, I think March or April. Well, we'll definitely get that book, and we're definitely going to have you back on to talk about it at length. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. Thanks, Joan. Great talking with you. Thank you for inviting me. Always. And thanks to Louise for setting it up. (laughs) We are are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more local politics after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT. Yesterday, I told you that uh, legislators here in the state of Illinois were going to be back in Springfield early in January, I believe January 4th to the 7th, uh, and then they are home, and then I believe they go back on January 10th. 
We talked about what might be happening, and one of the things that we touched on was a bill being put forth, House Bill 5855, by Representative Bob Morgan, the Democrat that represents the Deerfield area. Well, Bob Morgan is here now to talk about the legislative uh, session and work upcoming and uh, this new bill that he is behind. Bob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Joan. It's a pleasure. Tell me what House Bill 5855 will accomplish. We're calling 5855 the Protect Illinois Communities Act, and it has a number of elements that addresses gun violence, not just the mass shootings that we saw in Highland Park uh, on the 4th of July, but also everyday gun violence that we see as more and more guns are flowing across our state lines from states like Indiana and Missouri. Was this because of, did, did you get motivated to work on this because of what happened in Highland Park, the mass shooting at the 4th of July parade? You know, unfortunately, uh, I have been, uh, my family has been a victim of gun violence in the past. Um, so I've always been pretty active and, and committed to combating gun violence. Um, I, I lost three cousins uh, to a murder-suicide. Oh. Um, and so this issue was always very personal to me. Um, but, of course, what my community went through uh, in the Highland Park mass shooting certainly galvanized the support, which really, frankly, preexisted um, uh, the Fourth the of July. We were literally gathered a week prior, all the elected officials, a number of community members, just one week before the shooting in Highland Park talking about banning assault weapons and other gun reform. So this is uh, something our community has always believed in, but certainly the shared experience we have now uh, is bringing us to this point of trying to move this forward so no other community goes through what we have. Really? I'd like to go through this bill sort of major point by major point. And please correct me if any of my information is wrong. Um, this this bill, the Protect Illinois Communities Act, <clears throat> excuse me, would go ahead and ban assault weapons. Is that correct? Yes. And would require registration of existing weapons. I can't believe they're, you think you don't have to re- register them right now. That's not a law. Uh, it's not. Um, right now, we, we really don't have a single source to, to know who owns what weapons. The best source we have really is our, our FOID card, whether somebody has a FOID card or a concealed carry license. You know what? Now really that know. you, now that you mentioned that, I should have known that because when I was talking last year, to a legislator who wanted to make some tweaks to the whole FOID card, the firearms owner identification uh, card process. One of the things that she said was when if somebody is convicted of domestic violence or in other ways loses the right to own a gun, the Illinois State Police are supposed to go to that person and collect their weapons. But the Illinois State Police have no way of knowing how many weapons that person has. They could say, oh, well, you know, here's my two handguns. And they don't realize that there's four more guns, you know, in the back of the house. This is a real situation that happens, unfortunately, a lot when you're dealing with domestic violence situations. You know, we've done some really great work on expanding our red flag laws, our our firearm restraining order law in Illinois. But it's not used enough. Most people don't know about it. And judges have a hard time and law enforcement has a hard time enforcing it. 
which like you noted, it, it's an incredibly difficult, volatile situation to make sure that we're removing guns from a home where somebody might be a danger to themselves or someone else. Mm-hmm. And um, as more um, of the points that are in the Protect Illinois Communities Act prevent future sales of magazines, ammunition, those are the containers of, of ammunition, uh, any magazines that hold more than 10 bullets and prohibit rapid fire devices that take a weapon and make it into an automatic weapon. Those are in this bill as well. You know, right. We're trying to close the front door. Essentially, these weapons, these accessories, they exist today in Illinois, um, thousands of them. But the idea is if we can ban the sales of them, the future sales of them, that we're going to, through attrition over time, have less of those in our neighborhoods. Some of this stuff is so common sense. And frankly, I think anybody who looks at these statements will be amazed that at least part of this isn't already how we do business. I mean, you know, one of the big things that I've been hearing about for years and years and years is this way we've always held gun manufacturers harmless no matter What happens no matter how irresponsibly they sell and distribute guns and ammunition? They are never, ever held liable. Talk about what your bill would change about that. Well, there's a different element that we have not yet filed. It will be a separate bill, um, but it has to do with accountability, like you said, of gun manufacturers and retailers, those who are marketing their products to people in order to commit crimes. Really basic stuff. Um, But there is federal law that says gun manufacturers uh, are not liable in civil court from a family who has been experiencing uh, gun violence, who has experienced gun violence because of their inappropriate, misleading marketing uh, and criminal marketing. So that is something that we're looking to introduce in the coming weeks. And uh, talk about the um, strike team that you want to create in the Illinois State Police. The, the increased flow of thousands and thousands of guns, most of which are illegal guns, coming across our borders and primarily from Indiana and Missouri that are being used in crimes is something that we really have not addressed in the past. Over the last year or two, and in fact, um, go, uh, President Joe Biden just signed our, our Bipartisan Safer Communities Act over the summer, which for the first time made it a felony to traffic guns across state lines, because before then it was a fine which is, Hmm. to your point, it's crazy. Uh, But now we have a federal felony behind those who are trafficking guns across state lines. But the Illinois State Police has just begun their really important work to make sure we're preventing some of this trafficking. Um, And we're going to be put into the enabling statute, into the primary function of the state police, their responsibility to keep those illegal guns from coming to our communities. But unless you set up traffic stops, uh, how do you, I mean, are Are we going to send Illinois State Police across the border to, you know, monitor or stake out the nearby gun shops and see if cars with Illinois license plates are, you know, throwing a bunch of uh, firearms in the trunk? How do how do you do that on the ground? How do you do it? The best way to think about this is the way that we think of trafficking of drugs or human trafficking. We already know it happens. Think gun trafficking. Uh, I'm sorry, drug trafficking. For decades, we have attacked the flow of drugs across state lines, and we've done it by looking at who the large 
uh, the individuals who are really um, organizing the large drug trans- transfers across state lines. It's usually not a single solo person. It's usually part of an operation. So the Illinois State Police and other law enforcement have experience in doing things like this. They've just never done it for illegal gun trafficking. They've only done it for human trafficking or for drug trafficking. I didn't realize that the guns coming into the state illegally, that that was on such a massive scale for whatever reason. And I don't have, frankly, Bob, have any idea. I always just assumed that, you know, it was like, you know, a a regular person driving a car and buying a bunch of guns that they could resell or distribute once they were in the state of Illinois. But you're saying this is actually big time um, large amounts of this material moving across state lines? Over 40% of the guns used to commit crimes in Illinois come from other states. Sometimes that is legal transfers. Somebody who buys a semi-automatic rifle in a different state who brings it to commit a crime here. But more often than not, in larger and larger numbers, people are taking carfuls and truckfuls of weapons and they're selling them and reselling them in Illinois where it's easier to buy them in other states. So it's not necessarily illegal sales, but sometimes it is. And our Illinois State Police has a number of tools uh, behind them and uh, are working together with Department of Justice and ATF to make sure that we're starting to reduce some of this flow of guns. Bob, we need to take a real quick commercial break. There's more in this bill that I want to talk to you about. I'm talking with uh, State Representative Bob Morgan, represents the Deerfield area, And uh, in the upcoming session, he's going to be behind the Protect Illinois Communities Act. Among other things, assault weapons would be banned. And isn't that overdue? And it looks like we're going to have to do it at the state level because nothing's happening in Washington. We'll be back with Bob Morgan after this. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with Illinois State Representative Bob Morgan. He is um, shepherding through the Protect Illinois Communities Act. It is uh, currently, Bob, it's, you're in, it's in committee, the House Firearm Safety and Reform Working Group. is. is do I have that correct? Well, now that we filed it, it will go through our uh, committee for Jude uh, Crim, our Jude, uh, Judiciary Criminal Committee. Uh, so we're going to be having some public hearings over the month of December as we, we ramp up towards lame duck. And how can people find out about those public hearings? Uh, well, we have our first one set. It's going to be Monday, December 12th. Uh, at 11 a.m. at the Belandic Building, downtown Chicago. Uh, and we'll have at least two, maybe three hearings over that next week or two, uh, just to make sure people are educated about not just the bill, but really talking about gun violence and the trauma that's afflicting all these communities throughout the state. Uh, the bill is called the Protect Illinois Communities Act. It would do, among other things, banning assault weapons, um, preventing um, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, 10 bullets. Um, it would prohibit those rapid-fire devices that you attach to a gun to turn it into some kind of automatic weapon. Uh, there's a lot of really, really interesting, really good, thoughtful measures giving uh, the Illinois State Police 
a mandate to try to stop the flow of illegal weapons into the state of Illinois from other states. I also, um, one of the things that I think is so important, and we've seen this sadly too much lately, if I understand it correctly, the bill removes the ability of anybody under 21 years of age to own a firearm or ammunition, unless, of course, you're in the military or, or something like that. Because um, we've seen, I mean, these mass shooters, 19, 20, 18, 22, you know, I mean, it seems to be a problem of young white men, frankly. You know, what it actually, it's, it's more of a loophole is how I view it. This is 18, 19, and 20-year-olds get a FOID card because they have a parent who signs off on it. And once they have that FOID card, they can buy unlimited amounts of ammunition and firearms. And when you're talking multiple semi-automatic rifles uh, for an 18 or 19-year-old, it's no wonder that we're seeing some of the violence that we're seeing. And this this really would marry and create parity with right now, you have to be 21 to buy a handgun. But at 18, you can buy unlimited semi-automatic rifles if you have a FOID card. So this would just create parity of what we already sensibly have for over 21-year-olds being able to buy a handgun. And the shooter at the Highland Park 4th of July parade had, I believe, purchased both the gun and the ammunition legally, had he not? That's correct. Which just makes you realize that something is amiss. Now, what about the idea of sport shooting or hunting? We don't touch that. So anybody who hunts right now with a parent or guardian or who does sport shooting, they will continue to be allowed to do it. This really only addresses those who want to buy ammunition and firearms. We're going to end that practice for those who are 18, 19, and 20. And how does this new bill strengthen the firearm restraining order laws? Uh, as we talked well, first of all, let's back break, up. Would you explain what those are? Sure. Um, you hear and people have heard the, word, the words red flag laws, uh, the idea that somebody who is a danger to themselves, or others should not be in possession of a firearm. It makes sense on its face, but the enforcement of that is really hard. The part of what we've done over the last few years has expanded that process, made it easier for law enforcement to make sure that an individual who should not have a firearm in the home has that firearm removed. Um, and also with the Highland Park shooting, we talked a lot about the suspension of a FOID card, which is the clear and present danger situation. Similar processes, but different. One has to do with FOID card. The other one is for somebody who has a gun in the home or anyone who has a gun in the home, making sure that firearm is removed. Uh, It's that latter piece, those who are in domestic violence situations or some other situation that could be a harm to themselves or the people they live with. We're looking to expand how long a judge can take that firearm out of the home. Right now, it's only up to six months. It's a judge's order. And so what's really commonplace and what's the national standard around the country is having that for up to a year. Domestic violence situations don't always resolve themselves in just a few weeks or months. So this is just another tool to try and keep our communities, in particular our families, safe. Yeah. One thing um, that I don't see as a part of this and and I don't think is on the books, so are there laws that determine how a gun has to be stored in the home. 
you know, we don't have a mandate about safe storage. We've provided more education and more funding for safe storage in the last few years. But there's a lot that we need to do about storage. And, and I think what you're alluding to is in, in, in accurate. So a lot of gun violence is not it's not uh, somebody shooting somebody else on the street. It's, it, it's accidental, unintended uh, gun violence of somebody who accidentally discharges a firearm because it wasn't stored safely in the home. And this, not just murder-suicide and uh, death by firearm, but also those who inadvertently discharge a firearm in their home. It's a really serious issue, and and we have a lot more to do. And that's how a lot of small children end up dying or being seriously injured by guns. And it always amazes me, the people who will say afterwards, well, we had no idea that the kids knew where the gun was. The kids always know. Okay, you know, especially if they see an adult who appears to be trying to hide something. Trust me, the kids always know. And it is just it's just so sad when you see these incidents of one, you know, five year old, you know, shooting a three year old because they were playing with daddy's gun. Uh, It just one of my worst fears Uh, with a five and a seven year old at home. I. Um, spent a lot of time working with my wife, thinking about how much do we share with them. But in particular, we need them to understand what it means to be safe and what happens if they see a gun at a friend's home. How do they handle that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what kind of support do you have for this measure? Uh, well, the House Democratic Caucus uh, has supported a number of different gun legislation proposals in the past. And, you know, if you just look at uh, over the summer, one of my amazing colleagues, Representative Maura Hershauer, had a bill that would have banned the sale of assault weapons. We had almost 60 co-sponsors on that bill. Um, So I I think there's strong support within the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, And and in fact, I hope this is a bipartisan supported bill by by the time we pass it in January. What about in the Illinois Senate? You know, that the Senate has always been a partner with the Illinois House on gun legislation, and I expect the same to happen here. Um, but again, this is early. We are just beginning our public hearings over the next few weeks. Uh, and the only thing I know for sure is there'll be a lot of different people having ideas about changes to this legislation. Uh, but we're going to work hard to make sure that we we internalize the urgency behind this. This is, this is real stuff. This is impacting people's lives on a daily basis. And we need to really internalize that urgency with this legislation. When you have these hearings, Bob, is there any way to vet the people who want to contribute, whether it's asking a question or making a comment? Because we've seen, you know, I mean, heck, we've seen it in school boards where um, conservative organizations that don't even have any people who live in the area will send people to these meetings to espouse the far right beliefs. I am um, I live in a, a small suburb north of Chicago, and we had uh, a hearing here to talk about, you know, guns and what, if anything, should be done in this community. And I didn't see them. But somebody told me that sitting behind me were a couple of people who didn't live in the area, but they had clearly, I don't know whether they were sent by the NRA or whether they just came on their own, but there was so much support for some kind of sensible gun legislation that they never actually had the courage to get out of their seats and go to the microphone. But how do you prevent outside agitation at these public hearings? 
You know, I think in the past, politicians might have been more afraid of the NRA than they were doing the right thing. And I really think that dynamic has changed. It wasn't just Highland Park. It was Uvalde. It was Sandy Hook. It was Columbine. Over the years, there is now a very clear majority of the state and across political lines and across geography, it supports not just background checks that are universal, but things like an assault weapon ban. This is not fringe stuff. This is now the majority of the will of the state of Illinois. So are there going to be people who oppose this? Of course. They're going to show up to hearings. They want their voices to be heard. Of course, and they should. But we're also going to have mom's demand action there. We're going to have people who support common sense gun reform show up. At the end of the day, this is something that the state of Illinois as a whole wants to see. And we're going to get that done. So you're going to have a series of public hearings, going to take some input, maybe on the basis of that, uh, tweak the language of, of this bill. What is a realistic timeline? What would be the soonest in a perfect world that this could come for a vote? You mentioned earlier that our, our recent schedule uh, that's been published is generally speaking January 4th through the 7th. We'll be back in Springfield for lame duck session. Uh, my hope and expectation is that this will be voted on and, and during that time. Uh, and the General Assembly that we're in right now, the current term, that ends on January 11th. So everything I need to do has to happen by January 10th or sooner. Uh, otherwise, we restart the process, uh, which doesn't mean it could never happen. just means it isn't going to happen as soon as it really needs to. Uh, so we're going to be pushing hard to make sure this is done by January 10th or sooner. Wonderful. Um, State Representative Bob Morgan, thank you for this wonderful bill, this wonderful work that you are doing. And uh, keep us keep us in the loop. OK, we really want to follow this very closely and see how things are going and see what, if any, changes are made and how the votes go. OK, uh, we will and definitely keep keep posted and get involved and anyone who wants to support this. Uh, you can go online and go to the witness slips for the Jude Krim hearing coming up on the 12th. You can get involved. There are a number of organizations online pushing to support this legislation and the Protect Illinois Communities Coalition. So please get involved. We really could use your support. Thank you. Thank you very much, State Representative Bob Morgan. We're going to take a break for news now. We're going to be back with more. Live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. If you are one of our regular listeners, you know here on WCPT, we do a regular segment we call Union Strong. It is sponsored uh, by a lot of different unions, most of them trade unions. One of those is uh, Smart Local 265, Magugala, the financial secretary, treasurer, and business rep of Smart Local 265. Those are the sheet metal workers. Joins us now for this week's Union Strong segment. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Joan. Appreciate it. Okay, we have a lot to get to. You sent me and Julia um, so much information about things that are going on. Um, let me start, Matt, with the thing that um, the little graph that I thought was uh, real easy to understand. U.S. manufacturing is on the rise. You know, we all knew that uh, Biden was going to be great for the unions. That's what he promised. That's what he was act- acting on. 
this graph that you sent that shows um, different investments in manufacturing around the country, this really, I mean, it's it's exactly what Joe Biden promised. Talk to me about what you see when you look at this graph. Yeah, what I see, we're, we're very excited about this. So so what we see from this graph is that, that Biden's commitment and in, in, into investing our tax dollars back into the middle class and back into America is, is huge. People don't really realize, um, this is one of my talking points. I, you know, people say, well, I don't like Biden. Well, how come you don't like him? Tell me, because you know, I'd, I'd like to be on board with you. Tell me. And they say, well, he's, he's, uh, he sleeps a lot, right? You know, I say, oh. well, that's, not, that's not a reason. Are you crazy? Here, check this out. And then we bring them something like this, where we show them, that they're the investment of our tax dollars back into America, you know, where they're building these mega projects, which is a mega project is three billion or more um, is, is considered a mega project. And so you have you have so many mega projects that are going to be coming up that are planned, um, that shovels are getting in the ground right now, uh, that the investment into into America is unprecedented. And, and that coming with that is the investment into the unions and into the middle class. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is admirable about Biden is that he's not just saying, well, you know, I'm only going to make sure that, you know, what I do benefits the blue states. You know, I mean, we saw that in in Donald Trump, the way, you know, as far as he was concerned, Illinois, California and New York could just, you know, drop off the face of the earth for all he cared. Um, But, you know, I see these factories going in in Texas um, you know, I see, you know, uh, things uh, in Nevada and Arizona and in Florida, you know, where he plans, where he <laughs> probably is going to be facing a challenger. I mean, this isn't um, he really is acting on behalf of the health of the entire country. Absolutely. I mean, if you it, to, to take a look at the graph and I know you can't the, the, the listeners can't see it, but if I can paint a picture for you, um, you have you have a lot of dots all over the United States of, of plants like Panasonic and U.S. Steel and Eli Lilly and these giant corporations building and, and with with the help of our money, taxpayer dollars. Uh, and then when you look at it, the, those dots all over the screen and then when you look at Illinois, you don't see those dots. And in California, mm-hmm. you don't see and it, and it's and you'll you'll see those dots in in the red states and you see the dots uh in in the places that aren't what you would consider as as friendly to uh to the Biden administration um but it is it shows the commitment it shows the uh nonpartisan commitment it's it's for the country and and uh you know to have ideas like that and to put uh to put your money our money where you, where your mouth is 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 huge yeah, I was uh, I was talking yesterday with uh, Rick Smith, who does a show here at night on WCPT. And he said every place on that map, every place where there's like a Volkswagen factory or a solar panel factory that's, you know, bringing in jobs and, and bringing in part of the green economy. Rick Smith said President Biden should put up either a sign on the factory or a billboard nearby that says, with a pointing at it and saying, I did this. I did yeah, this. I did that. I like the gas pump, right? Yeah, yeah. You absolutely should. And, and, you know, I think that the other exciting part about this is, is with jobs that size, the only people that can build it are the, are the, the, the people in the unions 
because we're the highest trade, highest, mm-hmm. you know, we can mobilize, we can get these things done. And when you're, when you need uh, 800 sheet metal workers to go down to Tennessee, uh, smart are the people, we, we can do that. We can, yep. we, we're able to, we have those, that amount of skilled uh, tradespeople that can, that can get there and can get the job done um, faster than you can imagine. So it's, it's also a benefit to the, the taxpayer because we're using the money and the funds properly, you know, or mm-hmm. conscientiously. We're using the fastest people to get the work done um, and the most trained. And so these this infrastructure can last generations. That's one of the things that you just touched on that I wanted to talk to you about more. Uh, infrastructure funding and how that is going to create opportunities for more smart member jobs and other union jobs. Yeah, I think as, as we talked before, we, we talked about some money coming into the infrastructure and there, there wasn't much coming towards our, our way. You know, it was mostly roads and it wasn't a lot of vertical uh, construction. Um, however, that has that has turned a little bit. Um, we're seeing things where where the the investment back into America is is going into our ventilation systems. And, you know, we have a lot of ways that uh, taxpayer or, or entities, taxpayers, entities can get get money uh, grants and they can get um, they can they can get tax breaks and things like that for uh, re redoing their HVAC systems, you know, so our governmental buildings and our schools, I mean, Schools, for instance, we have schools are the second largest sector of public infrastructure spending. Right. So so we spend a lot of money in our schools because they're we use them as polling locations and shelters mm-hmm. and uh, sports venues and classrooms and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, uh, until COVID, not much thought was given to the aging ventilation systems throughout those throughout throughout one of the most important things in our community. Um, well, now that we've been through COVID and we see that it's important. Uh, the, the Biden administration saying, OK, we're going to offer things through through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the American Rescue Plan Act and, and the, uh, the Coronavirus Response and Relief and, and Supplemental uh, Act uh, and also in the Inflation Reduction Act that are going to add dollars into into uh, avenues where we can get um, these things done in these schools and we can we can start to worry about the, the ventilation and that aging infrastructure within within our communities well that's something that you know i never thought i would need to know about is uh, what kind of ventilation does a particular building or a particular school have i mean my kids now are beyond school age but i've got to tell you if my kids were back in grade school or middle school or junior high or high school uh, that would be something that I would be very interested in, in knowing. What kind of ventilation system do you have? When was it last updated? You know, um, how 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 does the air circulate? I mean, these are the kinds of questions, don't you think, that parents should be asking? Absolutely. You know, the, the parents and the teachers, the teachers especially, you know, and the parents at the school board meetings, and, and frankly, the school board themselves should be saying, when was the last time we had our ventilation verified and and what steps were taken to make it you know uh, breathable and what what steps were taken to make it a good atmosphere for our for our kids and for our staff and and uh for the community at large i mean there's you can go from simple things like changing out your filters making them more efficient and 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 studies can be done to find out will the system take that can you do it right um mm-hmm. and then it, it, it can lend to making our our uh, our buildings a little bit better 
uh, to be in and to, to exist in, you know, because we pack those classrooms and we're teaching these kids and we got our, our teachers there. And, and uh, it, it, there was a study out of uh, UC Davis in California that showed um, that, uh, that proper ventilation in schools, it actually improves the learning within, within, you know, the, the class, because you have the, 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 you're getting rid of the CO2 that's in there. Um, you're making an atmosphere that is more conducive to learning and who doesn't want that? You know, the teachers yeah, really? want that. They want it healthy and they want it to be safe. Um, and I think it, it does take a call to action for our, our parents and it, and for the, the administrators and everybody to kind of look at this. And on top of that, you're getting, government money, which is your tax dollars coming back to Illinois for once, right? So they can come back to <laughs> yeah. Illinois. And uh, rather than, rather than a, a, a payer state, we can actually bring some of it back here and use it to make our communities and our, and our uh, schools better. I'm speaking with Matt Gugala, who is uh, part of our Union Strong sponsored segments here. He's the financial secretary, treasurer, and business rep of Smart Local 265. We're going to continue our conversation right after a break. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. For accurate news coverage. I will tell you what Donald Trump is doing is not only an exercise in ego, but it's dangerous to the future of this country. Like you, the United States wants this war to end. The only country standing in the way of that is Russia. And factual conversations. The Republicans are defending a system that is in place today that allows murderers and rapists and domestic abusers to buy their way out of jail. Chicago's progressive talk. The hospitality industry is at the top of that list, and I'm confident that this ordinance will help them. WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regular Union Strong segment where we talk to the leaders in the trade unions here in the Chicago area. And it has been so delightful to have these conversations lately since Joe Biden took office and has been passing bills that not only have spurred a lot of new manufacturing and new infrastructure, but bills that also make it a lot easier in some places required to make sure that the workers are union workers and that there are good paying union jobs available to people. Um, Matt Gugala from Smart Local 265 has provided me with some of the documents, the just all the different aspects of the infrastructure bill and some of the other things that the Congress has passed, one of which is uh, clean energy tax credits. There are rebates. Those are both in the Inflation Reduction Act. And there are loans and grants that can be available for improving energy efficiency and indoor air quality. Talk about that, Matt. Yeah. So the, the, with the, let's, let's just take the Inflation Reduction Act. So within that Inflation Reduction Act, there's, there's big dollars for, and, and for, for people like our listeners, you know, people that are out there, uh, just the, the regular average, average person that is, needs a new upgrade to their furnace or air conditioner, uh, um, their air conditioner in particular, right? There's a, there's a $2,000 rebate, uh, into 
getting a what they call a heat pump, which is just like an air conditioner is part of an air conditioner, right? Um, and that, I don't really that understand heat, what the difference between yeah, an air conditioner right. and a heat pump. Are they the same thing? Right. No, you don't need to. It's okay, right? Okay. I'm still going to give you two grand for it, right? So the, be- <laughs> the best part of it is is that you, you, you to change out that portion of it uh, is is a two thousand uh, dollar credit towards an installation for that, which is which is huge. It really offsets that cost and makes it more reasonable to do it. And and it also, if you show that you're using a a contractor that's paying the prevailing wage, you can you can multiply that. It can get more. You you'll get more in the rebates because as the Biden administration is is also it's it's when you start to dig into this stuff and really read the fine print and see that this is for and not not just necessarily unions. It's for quality work by trained people that get paid a good wage. So in, within these, it's saying uh, that it, it's looking at preference. Saying uh, if you have an accredited apprenticeship, there are there's preference for that. If you're paying a prevailing wage, there's preference for that because it's showing that you're you're trying. The, the Biden administration is trying to build the middle class and and uh, kind of uh, shore it up because corporate profits are are insane. And we have to look and take a nod to the middle class that says, all right, these people are the ones out there every day. They're getting the job done. They are the essential workers. We've learned that. And now uh, they they should be compensated for good work. They should be compensated for learning their trade, for having this skill. Um, and this is the, the Inflation Reduction Act. You have credits, uh, energy credits for um, for commercial buildings, not just not just the residential side, but on the commercial side for multifamily homes, uh, multifamily low income homes. Um, there's there's a whole collection of things that they've done that, that just make a lot of sense into giving uh, a quality job and getting those quality jobs in the hands of good people that know how to do the jobs and then getting some money in the hands of the people that are, are, are valuing that and saying, let's, let's get these, let's, let's get quality people to do our quality job. Matt, whether somebody's representing a commercial um, facility or is thinking of replacing their air conditioner, as you said, how do people, regular people on the ground find out about this stuff? So the regular people on the ground will have to, you'd really talk to your contractor. So if, if anybody out there would go to IWantSmart.com, they could look for a uh, for a contractor that's on there on the residential side. Say that again? IWantSmart.com? Yep. That's right. IWantSmart.com. And uh, you can go there. If you were to go there, you can put in your zip code and search a contractor, um, and it'll it'll give you one of our contractors that is very knowledgeable in all of the above. Um, they can also look at smart265.org uh, if they want to take the take the shot at just looking through a contractor list and picking a contractor. But all our contractors and our technicians and our members are all trained in in the work and how what it takes to get it done. And then uh, and the company itself is going to know about what tax credits that they can offer for, for what type of job. I always think of um, union jobs as big jobs, like, you know, building skyscrapers and things like that. But some of these contractors that I can find at IWantSmart.com would be somebody that could do a small enough job, like replacing a furnace or an air conditioner? Absolutely. So so we have a... We have a large contractor base, about 200 contractors within within our uh, our area here, and uh, we 
I would say over half of those contractors can do um, the, the small residential replacements. And then there's there's a lot of contractors that obviously can do the big work because we need that too. But uh, but we we kind of cut our teeth on the residential um, back in the back in the uh, through the years. So uh, we have a lot of shops that know how to do that stuff. A lot of mom and pop shops, people that are living in your your areas and your neighborhoods, and and they're they're your neighbors and they're going to school with your kids and they're on the baseball teams and uh, and they're we're at the charity events and the five k runs and all that stuff. We're we're part of the community, um, and our contractors are not a, a big conglomerates. They're just they're just small mom and pop people that know how to know know how to do some stuff. So they uh, they they hire our people, and we get things done. So let's say in that situation, you know, you live in a community, you know, uh, in your downtown area. There's a um, I don't know a, a plumbing company or an uh, HVAC company. If you want to hire local, when you call these people, Matt, what are the questions we should ask to find out about whether or not they use, you know, union workers or, or how they do the work? What what do we say? Don, that is the best question of the day. So so uh, I didn't expect it, but that was fantastic. <laughs> not that I didn't expect a good question from you, but but that's a great question. So um, so there's a there's a big difference. So the the best way is if you ask if they are a union contractor. If they're a union contractor and they hire union people, our union technicians, especially for the home, our union technicians are technicians. They they know how to fix the problems. Um, some of the others, uh, you know, um, Brand X, we'll call them, uh, their technicians are salespeople. Um, so they're, they're more geared towards um, increasing sales for the company rather than fixing the, the trouble. Um, and we've had conversations with some of our, our contractors that, that they say, we'd like your, you know, how come your guys don't sell as much? And we say, we don't sell, we fix. Um, it, so we fix and we, we stall. That's what we do. It's so interesting that you say that because um, I've lived where I'm living now for a very long time. And when I first needed, I don't even know what kind of work done, something like, you know, some pump or air conditioner or furnace or something. There was a company that I, it well, they had, they seemed to have a pretty high profile and they seemed to be relatively locally based. But every, I finally, after a few years, stopped using them because every time they sent a worker out, there wasn't, there was an attempt to upsell me. And, it was every it was every time. And I know that the poor people who were being sent to my home were required to do this because one time when somebody doing something tried to up sell me in some way and I was like, you know, no, thanks. I don't really want that. And I was he said, OK, well, could you could you put could you initial this line here on my clipboard? Because it says that I offered you all these other things and I initialed the line and I was like. You know, that's when I realized upselling was literally a part of their job, you know, because somebody would fix something and they'd say, well, you probably should replace it. Really? You think it's going to break? Well, and, you know, in about three years, it's going to break. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll have you come back in three years. Thanks anyway. Yes, and that's that's how you tell the difference. You uh, you first ask, are, are you a union contractor? And and when they are, you're you're that's going to be minimized. And then as far as when when they're not, you're going to know it. So when you when you have somebody come and do your work, you'll know at the end, one way or the other, you're going to find out, yeah. and they're going to tell yeah. you. 
you know, you need this, you need this, you should do this, you should do this. And, and most of the time, uh, that's a sales, that's a sales ploy rather than a, rather yeah. than a, let's, let's job, uh, thing. So, so yeah, that, that's a good question. And that is how you find out. You just ask them, are you a smart contractor? Are you signatory with smart? Are you a union, uh, contractor? Yep. Well, thank you. Matt, now we know. Um, and thank you for being here and thank you for supporting what we do. Um, I was just talking to somebody like last week that, um, who said, you know, the unions need to tell their story. They need to get the word out. So I feel really good about these segments because we are getting the word out about the good work that is done by union workers. And thank you for being a part of that, Matt. Well, I appreciate you having me here, Joan. Thank you. That is Matt Gugalo, the financial secretary, treasurer, business rep of Smart Local 265. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. You know, a lot of my good friends work over at WGN Channel 9, so... I uh, look to WGN. I don't generally follow, except on social media, a bunch of uh, TV news sites. But GN, they really do focus on what's going on here in Chicago. And I got very, very alarmed when on the WGN website on December 1st, they posted a five alarm fire story about anti-cruelty society at maximum capacity Waiving adoption fees. There's a, a, a dog, dog apocalypse, dog apocalypse. I don't know. Um, so, of course, I called up Tracy Elliott and I said, we got to get on the radio. We've got to talk about this. And you've got to tell me what is what is going on and what anti-cruelty is doing and how we can help. Tracy Elliott very graciously is here right now to answer my questions. Tracy, how are you doing? I'm doing OK, John. How are you? I'm I'm doing very well. I was I'm doing much better after sharing a few texts with you. And um, maybe it isn't quite as uh, catastrophic as as I first thought. Tell me what's going on. Well, the the facts are that we are, in fact, at an overcapacity, uh, but not just us. Um, it's all over the country. It is small shelters, large shelters. Urban, I've been urban. reading that people aren't adopting it at the at the typical right. rates. Do you have any idea That's why? Right. Well, we're we're trying to figure it out. Um, it may not be the same answer everywhere, but clearly it's some kind of COVID, you know, reckoning um, because it's just counter to every other that every other trend that was occurring pre-COVID. All the numbers in the animal welfare field were, in, you know, going in a great direction pre-COVID. Um, and they've just reversed. And it doesn't make any sense that it's something other than whatever the post-COVID effect is. It could be that obviously we were very successful early in COVID with people wanting companions, so there was a lot of adoption. There was also a lot of, you know, purchases from breeders and things of that nature, too. And it just may be that the market is currently saturated. It could also be that people's lives are very upended and people aren't willing to make long-term commitments. It could be the economy. Um, you know, a lot of people are suffering and, and uh, they may not have the economic wherewithal to bring a new, new creature into their family. It could be a combination of all those things, or it could be something completely mm-hmm. different that we don't yet understand. There's nobody that, you know, 
can can sort of use science and evidence to figure this out. Although our uh, vice president of quality and best care, Darlene Duggan, is about as brilliant at that as anybody I've ever met, and she's working on a couple theories. But um, I, I, it, again, I just think it's part of the co- post-COVID reckoning that is affecting so many areas of our society. Um, our particular problem is big dogs who who stay here too long. But it's really interesting, Joan, that you know we we save puppies from the south from very small shelters that you know may not be able to to ha- produce positive outcomes for them. And we don't get many puppies, right, from local. The stray situation is still in, in decent shape in Chicago, at least for us. I know animal care and control is is struggling as well. But even our, our puppies used to move in a day or two. As soon as we found the adoption floor, they'd be gone. And we have puppies now that stick around for a week. Now, that doesn't sound bad, but it's just so counter to the previous experience that it says something is going on out there. Uh, huh. Holidays was always a good time for, for puppy adoption, for instance. Um, not so much right now. Cats, we've been pretty good with. Um, we, we've, we are struggling with cats, but we're really struggling with dogs. So we don't know exactly why. Um, what we do know is that we have a problem. We, we are, it's an all hands on deck. It's not, I don't want to call it a catastrophe. It's not, but it is a struggle and it's an all hands on deck, uh, sort of situation for us. And we are pulling out every stop we know how to do, and then maybe some we don't even know yet to try to, to deal with it and getting really creative and innovative um, and trying to sort of go into places in the community that adoption centers don't exist and get really creative about how we interact with, you know, private organizations. Uh, and so we're, we've got a task group working on it. Um, the coalition, the Chicago Humane Coalition, which is, I think, forgive me if I'm wrong about this, 12 city shelters and, uh, that are that have formed a partnership to work together on main big problems like this. We're working on it. They're working on it, I should say. But, you know, it just so far is defying. We're pulling out all the stops that we used to pull out when we would get full, as other shelters are, and they aren't working. Um, hmm. Waiving adoption fees really is not, a, is not moving the animals any faster. Um, you know, increased marketing. It's not really putting much of a dent in it. Um, so we've got to really think broadly. And, and we also, and this is why it's so great to have people like you on our side. We've got to really reach out to the community and say, this is a community problem. These animals aren't ours. They're everybody's. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure out ways to work together to, to try to get this done. And again, it's not just us. I, you know, everybody that we talk to here in the city um, is in the same boat, and some are worse. Some have bigger problems than, than we do in terms of overcapacity. And I can tell you, it is very um, taxing on the phenomenal people who work in my organization and the others who are so dedicated and passionate, but really, really tired. And uh, to some degree, I would even say frightened, maybe concerned about the future that we are giving up progress that we have spent so much time with allies like you to make. So, um, yeah, we're in, we're in, um, we're in crisis mode, but not catastrophic mode. And then there comes the second crisis, which I have to talk about because it really does affect this. And that's staffing. You know, it's really hard to find folks to work right now. And when we are over capacity, but understaffed, and I think that's true of 
everybody we talk to, that really puts, excuse me, that really puts a significant amount of pressure on the folks who do this work and work so hard. So we're having also to be very creative about how to support um, our colleagues. You know, uh, that's a really important point, and that's really not something that we have discussed in in our segments before. Let's, uh, Tracy, let's you and me take a break right now, and I want to talk to you more about what kinds of positions that um, you are looking to fill. And also, I know there's a huge volunteer group at the shelter. What kinds of things do volunteers do and what's expected of them? Uh, I'm talking to Tracy Elliott, who's the president and CEO of Anti-Cruelty. We're going to be back with more right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello? Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820. There is um, a slowdown in animal adoptions all across the city. Tracy Elliott is president and CEO of Anti-Cruelty, and we are have been talking about this, but he said it isn't just getting animals adopted out, um, that anti-cruelty, for one, is finding it hard to hire people. So, Tracy, let's talk about the kind of people you're looking for and also about your volunteer programs. Sure. Well, the, the primary um, need right now is for uh, what we call animal advancement specialists, which you don't have to be one to get the job. You, we will make you one, but it's the people Animal advancement specialists? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's what we call our, our animal care workers, the people who take care of the dogs and cats and rabbits and guinea pigs and whatever we happen to have every day and do a marvelous job with it. Um, it is not uh, the same as taking care of your animal at home. It's a far more difficult job because we have to, we have herd health to think about, right? Not just individual dog health or cat health. We have a, uh, we have, you know, the possibility of zoonotic diseases that can break out and, you know, affect lots and lots of animals. So we have to, for instance, sanitize and clean our cages in a very specific way with, you know, the right steps and the right, uh, the right products and things of that nature. So, you know, people need to, um, be trained on that, but once you're trained, it's not difficult, and you get to certainly interact with the animals. And then also, as you progress up in this career, you can do more and more animal enrichment because um, that's really an important piece to keep keeping all the animals, uh, you know, in good mental health while they're here. So we 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 care for their physical health, but we also care for their mental health. So those are jobs that um, don't require any specific. Uh, skills or education is just a desire to care for animals and the ability to be trained and follow those protocols and be a dependable, you know, person to make sure you get in, into work on a regular basis because we have the animals that need you. And uh, those are those are uh, jobs that are, there are plenty of them right now everywhere in our organization, but all over the city and all over the country. 
Um, we're, we are pretty good at this point in terms of clinic, in ter- but oftentimes there are jobs available in our clinic for vet assistance. It's, again, something you don't necessarily need specific uh, requirements for or experience. We can train you. Um, and then there are just some other you know, jobs in the, in the organization scattered around that are really, really important that we're having a hard time filling, too. I, and then, of course, everybody is in everybody in the country, even private organizations are, there's a huge vet shortage. Um, and so there are lots of organizations that are having to cut back on services and volume because they don't have veterinary care. We are really fortunate that we're not in that position. Um, if somebody's listening to this and they're interested in this kind of yeah. work, how do they, do they apply online? Exactly. Go to anticruelty.org uh, and backslash uh, I think it's jobs. I will find out, but you can easily find it. Careers. Um, there's a button, and uh, the jobs that are available are listed, and the application process is right there. Um, hmm. And we pay can you well. work part time uh, as well as full time? We have very few part time positions right now, but we are making an adjustment in that because it's uh, we need to. Um, we have tried to avoid part time work uh, as much as possible. Uh, just been sort of part of the tradition of the organization to make sure that everybody is eligible for benefits and that we take good care of people. But um, there are a lot of people who want part-time work now. And so we're, we're making some adjustments there. And to be honest with you, I can't remember if there are any part-time jobs available right now, but you could certainly find that out. Mm-hmm. And I would also say to folks who are interested, keep coming back because this situation is changing quite often. And if you don't want to come to River North, but you live down on the south side, you know, I know South Suburban has a lot of jobs open. I know, you know, there are other animal care and control, which is, you know, on the near south side of the city, they have jobs. All the shelters do. And I don't want to be selfish. Um, In fact, Mm -hmm. we are actually helping uh, one shelter by letting them use, um, uh, sharing our our veterinary care with them. So, um, and we are actually building a veterinary hub so that, cause we have, we have a phenomenal HR department. We have a phenomenal medical department and we haven't had nearly as much trouble hiring and retaining vets as others have. So we've decided let's use that to help other shelters in the area, stay in business and care for animals. And so we are kind of creating this uh, veterinary, uh, I don't know what to call it, hub or pool of people that can then spend part of their day or part of their week at shelters that are having a difficult time finding them. Those shelters pay us um, exactly what the cost of the of the uh, person's hourly wage is. Um, but again, we have the ability to hire that and recruit that some of the smaller shelters do not. And if we lose... Um, a lot of our smaller shelter partners in, in, in the city, um, and that's going to cause another crisis because they do really important work in their communities, and uh, uh, they're they're hurting as we, as we are. But but you know, I've run a small organization too. It's much more vulnerable to you know the vicissitudes of the economy or whatever crisis happens to uh, be occurring. So we're really w- working trying to help those folks as as we can as well. Mm-hmm. And what about volunteer opportunities? Well, they're virtually unlimited. Um, again, you could go to our website and uh, anticruelty.org backslash volunteer, and everything is described there. But we do have a program 
right now. Let me let me tell you the full volunteer program. You got to get trained and do some core work first, and then you can kind of choose your specialty. But it takes a little bit of time. However, we have take a dog on a walk volunteer program right now, where you just can come in, get a very very brief amount of training on dog walking, and take a dog on a walk. Just get them out of here. Um, and a lot of people love to do that on their lunch hour or whatever. Um, because with this many animals in the building, it's harder and harder for us to provide the stimulation and enrichment that they need at that level. So we're appealing to people to come and do one of the funnest things you could possibly do, just take one of our dogs out on a walk around River North. Um, that is not, does not have to be a long-term commitment um, or take much of your time. Um, that's also described on the, on the volunteer page. Well, that sort of leads into the other thing I wanted to ask you about. You've been, you guys have been doing some really creative things when it comes to fostering. You know, I've, oh, like the weekend foster. Talk about all the different fostering right. options. Well, there again, um, you can certainly be a long-term foster. What I mean by that is you take an animal in for as long as, you know, it's necessary to help that animal adjust to uh, the shelter or find a home or whatever. That's the traditional. And I know, Joan, you've done that. You're a hero in that regard. But there are shorter-term foster options now where you can just take an animal home for a weekend just to get them again out of the full shelter where there's a lot of stimulation and uh, a lot of stress. Um, And then there's foster ambassador programs or foster to adopt. So you can actually take an animal and become its ambassador. You don't have to take it home, but you can help us through your network. Oh, is that what that means? Because I've seen on the Mm -hmm. website, this animal is an ambassador. And I thought, well, what does that mean? Is it like a therapy animal or what? What does that mean? Right now, they're all therapy animals. (laughs) Yeah, really? You can imagine. Um, But yeah, so there you can kind of take responsibility and try to help one find a home beyond our networks. And then there's also uh, foster to adopt where you can kind of test out an animal and of course, we, you can always return and adopt an animal to us if it's not working out for any reason whatsoever, without question. But this kind of gives you a chance to say, I'm a foster, and if, you know, if it isn't the perfect fit for you, you can uh, bring it back, and we'll find another home for it. So lots of options, lots of creativity. I'm, I have a feeling we're going to be even trying more options in the future. So, so you know, continue to check with our, on our website. Um, but we really do need the help, and the animals need the help. Um, when... And when Ray and I did the uh, very short. when Ray and I did the foster training, we did it virtually. Um, I mean, it takes about an hour, but it was a yeah. class that we all attended on our computer. Is I, I don't know if that was just for the pandemic or if you can do it virtually anytime. Well, we we are uh, <laughs> back to the future. We have a fairly significant number of staff out with COVID right now. There seems oh, to be boy. A, a, a resurgence because of the holidays. So we've gone back to virtual meetings only and, and a mask mandate here in the building. So to be honest with you, I don't, this just happened today. I would imagine that for a period of time until we get through the holidays and see that we don't have a huge surge, that all trainings will be virtual again. So, and we were set up to do that. I, as you mentioned, I think before it was a good training um, we all, we'd love to have people in the building in person, but, you know, at this point, we can't afford to lose any staff to COVID, and we have a significant number out now, um, and it really just adds, you know, a great deal of stress to this already stressful situation. So we're kind of hunkering down and trying to get through the holidays. Um, well, the part of the reason I wanted to ask about that is um, 
Uh, I know that uh, you have a wonderful woman, Lizzie, who handles a lot of the the safe program and the fostering stuff. And for for those of you who are going to be like me, uh, home for the holidays, sometimes people who are fostering animals around the holidays, if they want to travel, they need somebody to do what's called a vacation foster, where you just take their foster animal for a week or a weekend. Especially, it's really needed around the holidays. And I've already reached out to Lizzie that we were going to be here over the holidays uh, so that we can step up for somebody who is already fostering but wants to take a vacation. So there's all, I mean, I mean, talk about the shortest of short term. I guess fostering for a weekend is shorter than that. But, but, um, people who foster, you know, they, they can't travel with uh, their animals. It's just not a good idea. So they need somebody to step in for a few days or, or a week. And, and it's a, it's a great way to, to do this and help an animal out. And yet you don't have to worry about, you know, what's going to happen down the road because it's a very short commitment. So I wanted That's to right. get and that little PSA in, too. Thank you, Joan. And I, it just occurred to me as you were saying that, while that's always been better for the animal, it's always better to be in a home than the shelter, as good a care as we give them. Um, it's especially important now because if those animals are coming back into an already full shelter, um, it just adds to everyone's stress, including the animals. So we yeah. keep those, in, those animals in homes during the holidays. Uh, that's ideal for everyone. So thank you for bringing that up. Appreciate it. Tracy Elliott, thank you for being here. Anticruelty.org um, is, or look at a, a, up a shelter that's near you. They all need help right now. Tracy, thanks for being here. Obviously, you, um, for being such a great ally. Thank you. Uh, Andy's telling me my music is playing. It's time for me to be quiet now and uh, and welcome Patty Vasquez to the station. She's going to be starting her show right after we do news. I'm going to see you tomorrow. We'll talk about whatever's happening in Georgia. Hopefully, maybe we'll know something by tomorrow. See you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night. Good night.